Veronica Post is a furniture maker, teacher, and an award-winning graphic novelist based in Nova Scotia. She's written two graphic novels so far, both published by Conundrum Press. The books are part of a planned trilogy focused on the trials and tribulations of their title character Langosh and his trusty dog Peppy. The first two titles, Fugitive Days and Hot to Trot, are journalistic explorations of Veronica's experiences that think through the realities of war, history, migration, and trauma. In this conversation, we talk about Langosh, Pepe, and Yeva Hot to Trot, an adventurous, ponderous romp that takes the reader across the United States on a tour not only of different spaces and cities, but also of the characters' emotional lives. The book is a thoughtful study of how relationships evolve, often through friction. I thought the friction that came out of differences people had about specific social issues was really relatable. People argue about religion, about capitalism, about the crisis of unhoused people that has spread like wildfire since the outbreak of COVID. There are triumphant moments too in the book where splash pages take us into heroic moments of women leading with care, people connecting over their shared outrage and linking up in spite of significant differences to be there for each other. It's a great book. It's, it's also beautifully drawn. Veronica has a real eye for landscapes and because Hot to Trot is taking you on this big adventure, she has an opportunity to capture all kinds of different sunsets, spaces, and methods of movement. People don't stay in one place for very long, and the characters in the book have a pretty restless attitude toward time, especially Langosh. Langosh doesn't want to think about the future, but the future has him in its clutches. He can't avoid it. But this isn't his fatal flaw. Veronica reveals what that is from her perspective in this conversation. If you read the book, though, you'll pick up on it. It's a lot of fun, but it's also really full of sympathy and subtle speculations on how people work or don't work as social beings, and also some of the ways that time takes us through this meandering path towards something like realization and connection. I loved the new book. I really enjoyed uh, installment two of the Langosh series. I'm calling it Langosh because yeah. <laughs> book one was Langosh and Peppy. Now we've got Langosh, Peppy, and Ye- uh, Yeva. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to see which protagonists get added to uh, volume three, but we'll have to, the world will have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, congrats on getting it out. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. I'm glad you liked it. Mm -hmm. And like the book has this interesting kind of framing, uh, both like if you, you know, people pick it up, the back, uh, the back of the book has these wonderful uh, quotes from Noah Van Skyver and James Spooner. um, But also these kind of like interesting questions uh, that get raised about the book. So there's like a, a degree of framing there. But then there's also like you yourself kind of um, present the book to the reader at the beginning. And in that opening, uh, you offer this kind of disclaimer about how the events in the book um, are based in fact, but shouldn't be taken maybe as factual. Mm -hmm. You say that, um, you know, the subject of the book for you is, quote, painful, nonlinear, unavoidable and necessary transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, when we first talked uh, about the first book in the trilogy, Fugitive Days, you said that um, the stories in it shouldn't be seen as journalism or as history, 
and I feel like that's what you're getting at with your use of maybe nonlinear here. But that phrase nonlinear is evocative, especially in the, uh, you know, within graphic storytelling where the line <laughs> is such an important thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is where I kind of wanted to start. Like the mm -hmm. timeline is a line, whereas what you're doing is nonlinear. Uh, what did you want to emphasize that this, you know, nonlinear narrative was doing through the use of that phrase specifically? Well, I think I was, yeah, it's interesting to hear your question because I think your framing of the question makes me think about that use of that phrase a little differently. Um, I think what I was, what I was initially getting at with the saying it's nonlinear is that I, I picked um, events um you know and memories but i didn't necessarily order them in a linear fashion so sure. uh so there's things like with that there when i was thinking of it being non-linear um mm -hmm. but also yeah i i think uh in terms of this sort of uh, where, where i go into the beginning of both the books kind of being like this isn't exactly like journalism or it's not exactly like super historical. I think I'm just really aware that, you know, this is just my subjective take on these experiences and, mm -hmm. you know, other people who were present at the time of those experiences might have a different, a different take or a different perspective on what happened. So I think there's that there too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a degree of kind of responsibility implied by um, needing to get it right in the context of journalism, um, an ethics to it. Um, mm -hmm. In the context of graphic storytelling, I often think about like Cole Paul's talking about the way that he feels a different level of responsibility when he is representing like his friends, you know, just yeah. even getting their likeness right <laughs> um, is, is implies a degree of responsibility. Yeah, that's so true. I feel... Yeah. Ultimately, I think I was like, okay, my biggest responsibility here is to be, is to be true to myself and my, my own experiences. And that's not easy for me because I am a people pleaser. So I'm always constantly <laughs> like, well, you know, they might feel differently about it. And I think that's helpful in the sense that it adds different layers to it. Uh, and like, I'm right. able to see things from different perspectives. And that adds a lot to you know anything but um mm -hmm. but i think that yeah it's definitely just my my subjective experience i'm trying to highlight and that was very challenging for me but i uh it was important and then i felt like maybe that was what was going on when i was talking about that in the about the nonlinear and about all of the things mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book was just kind of me more reflecting on that i think for sure what you just said was interesting from the perspective of like Margaret Galvin has this book that I just interviewed interviewed her about uh, called Invisible Archives, where she talks about the history of underground comics. Mm. And how, like a lot of it is just kind of totally uh, flagrantly unethical and even sort of misogynist. And yeah. Your books are obviously much more, um, I would say, sensitive, empathetic. And like on the True North County, uh, I think it's True North County Comics podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, you talked about how this installment, Hot to Trot, is really about these two people, Langosh and Yeva, uh, caring for each other, but also like having moments of, of friction and, and these mm -hmm. differences. Um, I loved Yeva in the first book. Like 
She just <laughs> she's a scene stealer. Uh, <laughs> is on a, on his own a lot in fugitive days, um, which is why like Langosh is so attached to Pepe and why Pepe is such an important character in a way in that mm-hmm. first. Book. Um, otherwise, you know, our our eponymous character would be completely alone. Um, mm-hmm. Ask about how different it was to depict tension between people uh, so frequently in this book. Like uh, narratively, the sort of tension we see Langosh and Yeva deal with is something you might see in like a romantic plot, you know, mm-hmm. like a rom-com or even like marriage story in one of these more serious dramas. Langosh and Yeva's relationship is like really interesting to me. It's platonic, but it's also so intense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting to see such an intense relationship between a cis man and a cis woman like on the page and have it not be romantic. Mm-hmm. Were you trying to kind of figure out how to show the reader what connects these two people? Did you have to make a decision about how to explain it to readers? Or did you kind of want to let their relationship be a little uncertain? I guess I didn't really think too much about whether or not I needed to clarify what kind of relationship it was, like if it was mm-hmm. romantic, if it was ever romantic, or like what what was really going on there. I think what connects Langosh and Yeva is the fact that um, when they met, they were both in unfamiliar territories. So Yeva was you know, is like a Russian expat who is living in Budapest. Uh, Langosh, you know, was sort of this fugitive from justice from Canada who was living there. And they're both weird, (laughs) weird who didn't fit in. And uh, they met each other. And I think that they really connected on that basis um, of just kind of being like, hey, we're sort of both different and weird and kind of like up for anything and we see things in the from these different ways from what you know the people around us might see things uh so they connected on that level and I think in this book we're really seeing how that relationship changes when it when it moves into a different context right and uh Yava you know being like so used to being um confident and in control and like really really like the leader of her own destiny when Mm -hmm. she was in Budapest all of a sudden she's like in this context that she's not familiar with she's doing things she doesn't know like exactly how they work and she's distrusting Langosh but um that definitely puts her in a position that she's not very comfortable with Mm-hmm. And she's trying to be comfortable with it, but it's also kind of like, well, like, wait a second. I don't really like, I'm just kind of, you know, doing this thing. Maybe this is good. Like, maybe it's good to have these new experiences, but I'm not sure. And maybe we don't agree, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't mm-hmm. really feel like I needed to to clarify if their relationship was romantic or not, or had ever been romantic. I think, you know, um, that wasn't important. Yeah, no. And I think it's like something that we too often project onto stories, you know, like it's like it's such a generic feature um, of stories. And personally, like it's not a thing I appreciate. You know, (laughs) It's just it adds this unnecessary level of predictability that like, why? Why do that? I know. know? I was kind of like, even if I was interested in making Mm -hmm. it a romance, uh, that would really affect 
some of the other things that I wanted to say. And I, I was like, you know, mm-hmm. this isn't really about that. It's not about whether or not they're romantic towards each other. It's, it's about the different ways that they move through the world and see things. And, you know, it's a, it's about kind of um, how flexible we can be uh, within our relationships with the, with other people, I think. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the, a lot of the story takes place like on trains, hopping trains and Mm -hmm. like to use, to use a train metaphor, I think the romantic piece would derail the story um and it's funny too because like I remember when you gave interviews about fugitive days you did talk about how like when you were traveling for years you you I think you said you would put it in terms of like you were following love or something like that right Mm -hmm. so it was like um wrapped up in that for you but yeah I think you're you're exploring themes and and kind of um the human condition more generally here and and like part of the human condition is is difference maybe the core part of it is difference yeah. the mm-hmm. fact that people are different from one another and so like yeva and langosh argue a lot in the book <laughs> um they argue about a lot of things and that's kind of where i wanted to take things uh now is like what is the content um the contents multiple kind of different kinds of content of their arguments for me like maybe my favorite was the um the debate they have around like the question of the church of religion in in p- people's social lives. Mm-hmm. Yeva is religious. Langosh is decidedly not religious. <laughs> um, and so like the reader has to kind of position themselves in relationship to that. First of all, yeah. they, they have to go in these two characters having totally different perspectives have to go into a church when they're hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it really fun to see Langosh kind of sweating it out. <laughs> When, when he has to like answer the question of whether he's like accepted Jesus or whatever, yeah. um, you know, he, he has to look for a tactful way to like maintain his integrity sort of, but like not stick out in this space. Yeah. And he just says he has accepted yeah. Jesus, I think. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wondered what you were doing in that scene, like whether that was based on your own experience, you know, within maybe those those spaces of, of like the church and, and Christian, you know, the ongoing place of Christianity and in um, the lives of like us as white Westerners, like it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, Say white Westerners as though we come from the exact same background, which is not true. Um, (laughs) You know, do you sympathize with specifically Yeva's idea about trying to kind of meet people where they're at and respect their attachment to religion clearly she sees value in faith Mm -hmm. um and sees it as like having a lot of different roles maybe in people's lives yeah um yeah like where where does your sympathy lie in terms of that oh well like with every argument in this book (laughs) like me arguing with myself (laughs) sure i see both perspectives but i'm more sympathetic to yeva's perspective um Mm. And that isn't to say that I disagree with the foundation of Langosh's qualms with the church, um, with, you know, mm-hmm. evangelical uh, sort of, uh, you know, very North American style Christianity, especially. Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely, you know, I see where he's coming from. And generally speaking, he's just an anti-authoritarian 
in every respect <laughs> of his life mm-hmm. until he's just blind to seeing how he can be an authoritarian um, himself. So with this, I definitely see and um, maybe sympathize a bit more with Yeva's perspective because we can have, however, like all of these really legitimate criticisms of the church. But, um, you know, I think Yeva's coming from a place of understanding what it means to like forcibly remove religion from people's lives. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's just as problematic. You know? mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think I, I'm sympathizing with her because I think she can see a different perspective. And the the other part to that whole scene is Yeva's unfamiliar with this form of Christianity. Like, this is mm-hmm. the first experience with that particular brand. And so she doesn't have preconceived ideas about, you know, how this relates to politics or anything else. Yeah. So she is experiencing it in this very, um, I guess, what word should I use? Like, un, sort of unbiased kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Yeva, or I think Langosh is, you know, he's coming to it with all kinds of um, preconceived ideas about, like, what it, what it means to be an evangelical Christian, what that says about your politics, what that says about all sorts of, you know, what your personal beliefs might be on various things. Mm-hmm. So she's she's experiencing this from a very different place than he is. And if we took the context somewhere else, like if they were in a different culture and they were invited into a different place of worship, Langosh might not have that exact same reaction that he had. <laughs> right. He might be more curious and more respectful and, you know, more open. But we're, yeah. we can be you know, we can be so harsh to the people that we think we understand. Um, mm. And we, you know, I think sometimes we just need to take, not that I'm like, uh, I'm proselytizing here about, you know, people should join the church. I'm just saying we feel safe making generalized assumptions about individuals based on their beliefs. And it might not be quite so simple as that yeah yeah i think that's totally what you're exploring in the book and like the thing i would link it to uh is the scene where they they enter a bar and this guy sort of sort of immediately um flags them as like people who would vote for obama (laughs) and yeva's like who doesn't like obama like she just doesn't it's that sort of um that newness or that naivete that gives her the ability to kind of um under undercut some of the like partisanism or yeah. part you know like polarization yeah. within especially the u.s south i guess oh yeah she's not um, gonna get into the same argument right that everybody else would get into immediately you know <laughs> yeah and it leads to that incredible like uh photo <laughs> 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 that i think really works uh i got a big laugh out of that one um but yeah i think like just in general what I loved about the uh, evolution of Yeva in this book is like, you know, she has this class conscious consciousness that um, language doesn't exactly have in his um, dogmatic attachment to being anti-authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 
that class consciousness or that self-awareness about privilege that um, Langosh for all of his, you know, righteous rage against the mm-hmm. ruling class doesn't have um, does give her this opportunity to kind of emerge as like a, a major part of this trilogy. Mm-hmm. There's a conversation uh, toward the end of the book that I don't want to spoil where um, Langosh's perspective toward other people's ambitions, especially like he just sees that as, as the worst yeah. um, becomes like a real focal point. Um, what I really liked about that scene was how uh, Claire, I guess Langosha's sister, mm-hmm. uh, insists that Yeva let herself disagree with Langosh. Like, just yeah. let yourself be at odds with this person. Even <laughs> if you love them, it is okay, right? Yeah. I feel like there's a lot going on in that exchange. Um, because, yeah, like, Langosh is the hero in some ways. He's like, it feels like the title character, the through line. Yeah. But here you're giving details that make him like not heroic, like yeah. flawed, yeah. you know? And yeah. if you've already kind of pointed to it, but like, did you want to talk about that scene specifically, the function of Claire um, in a way here to kind of expose some of the contradictions in Langosh? And is it, is it like that lack of self-awareness that you see as his fatal flaw or is it something else? I think his fatal flaw is that he's, a zealot who is like refuses to acknowledge the validity of, of different perspectives. Sure. Um, I think that's his fatal flaw and it's because he's formed very, very strong values, not based on compassion or community or love, but based on, fear and self-protection and um you know anger (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i think that's his flaw and he's you know but he's a very you know complex character so there's a lot of other things going on there you know um and he's very capable of being sensitive and um you know he cries very easily and it's true he's he has He's so sensitive, actually, that I feel like it's almost getting in the way of him being brave enough to challenge himself or his own mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings. Like, but we get, like you had some questions. Uh, com- you have some questions coming up about time that I think I can get more into that. But with with that conversation between Yeva and Claire, I think that was kind of an important point where. You have a few other times in the book where Yeva's meeting people who are close to Langosh who are friends of his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in this relationship, you're seeing it's it's a sibling relationship. It's a family relationship. It's not just friends. And so Claire is able to see Langosh with from a place of like loving him in a way that's like this isn't like I don't have a choice whether or not to care about you like you're my family member and I've been through this with you now for years and it's affecting me and it's not just about you you know yeah exactly I think that's really that conversation was so important for Yeva because she was like, oh, okay. Like, mm-hmm. 
there are other people in his life who care about him on a level that isn't just about like validating him. It's about like also asking him to be accountable to the other mm-hmm. people in his life. And to like grow up in some ways, <laughs> like to just grow in a different direction. It's yeah. like you want to sympathize with Langosh and you do because, mm-hmm. you know, in, in many ways, those flaws come from like trauma mm-hmm. at the hands of a carceral state, yeah. um, you know, yeah. which you know, if we have time, we'll come back to, but you mentioned, um, this, yeah, the question of time. And one of the things that I really liked about the book is the like reflections on the kind of different paces and rhythms and temporalities of life. Um, there's a, a lot, especially about the conflict between Yeva's concern about the future, about projects, what she's doing, where she's going. And, Langosh's kind of what I would call presentism mm. that you're exploring. And the book does feel more more or less agnostic about what the right attitude toward time passing and futurity is. Mm-hmm. You said that the book is kind of you arguing with yourself. So I, I would guess that you have those same tensions, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that like, you know, creating a graphic novel takes a long time. I know one of your influences is Seth and he talks about just like the amount of time it takes to draw and how that's kind of on some level a deterrent to yeah, doing new books. It is. <laughs> you know that you're just like you're in it, right? Yeah. Um, were you kind of like, I wonder, I kept thinking about like work, right? The time of work and how language is trying to like avoid that form of, mm-hmm. of like being held captive to time and deadlines yeah. and like, you know, what he desires, which is this kind of post-work future, you know, a pretty anti-capitalist uh, mode of being. Where did you land in terms of like thinking about our ability to value time, enjoy time, use our time, or or I guess like kill our time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I am definitely... I, I struggle with um, maintaining an awareness of the moment that I'm in. So right. I do have a bit of a, you know, meditation practice where I'm trying to be, be a little bit more grounded because I can get very carried away in my anxieties about the future or like the past or whatever. Hmm. And so there's this sort of paradoxical thing where these books that I'm creating they wouldn't have happened if I actually hadn't been living in the moment and not necessarily doing what I wanted to be doing at them in that moment. Like I spent all mm. the years traveling and a lot of those years that I was traveling, I was like, well, I wouldn't necessarily be choosing this, but now that I'm here, I'm having this great experience. So maybe I should just be mm-hmm. present to that experience and just enjoy what's happening right now and just get the most out of it, you know? And that mm-hmm. was really valuable for me. And then, um, you know, I sort of got the opportunity to settle myself a little bit and build on these dreams that I was having while I was, you know, living in the moment and traveling and and being very rootless where I was like, oh, I can actually create these things that I've been dreaming about creating, like these books and working on advancing my skills as a craftsperson and finding a community of people that, you know, are my friends, (laughs) Mm -hmm. family. And um, so that was great. But now I'm here working on these books where I feel like all my inspiration is drawn upon those years where I was like not doing any of that. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> and so I'm yeah, like, yeah. I'm sacrificing future work to <laughs> to this lifestyle that I have now, which makes it possible for me to do my current work. Mm. I think about that a lot, and I'm just mm-hmm. like, maybe I need to take a break and like go live life again. Um, instead mm-hmm. of just being holed up in my house, like creating these books based on my past, you know? Yeah, I mean. Um, I know people like Sylvia Federici have written about how like the history of, uh, like labor, uh, has not always been the way it is now where like we have one job and we do that one job until we like retire and die or something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it is, uh, it is, you know, formerly was the case that people were much more nomadic in terms of the kinds of, uh, experiences and jobs that they would take. Um, and so like, there's definitely something enticing about that, but the, I do think the kind of, um, the structure of, of society basically incentivizes us to, uh, pursue a career path mm-hmm. and to stay on that path and, and punishes you in many ways from deviating from that path. So, yeah. um, but for, for art's sake, it does sound like, um, going back to attempting to be a little bit more rootless might be fruitful i don't know i think it would be but and there's other side to that which is yeva's experience uh like you were saying her fresh perspective being in a place Mm -hmm. where she doesn't have all these preconceived ideas about people and context yeah um i experienced that you know when i was you know traveling uh, you know throughout the balkans and into former yugoslavia and there's mm-hmm. so much, like, there's so much nuance um, to everything. And I was just completely like, I don't understand any of this nuance. So I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just talking to people and, like, relating to people based on, you know, how they seem. Are they, are they friendly? Are they helpful? And that? well, great. Then, like, let's be friends. Let's, you know. Mm. And, um, and then I, I just, like, learned so much. And I was like, man, the more you learn the more complicated it becomes and difficult to relate to other people just as the individual person that they are, you know, with all their complexity. And I, I, I kind of want to get back to having a bit more of a fresh perspective instead of being stuck in these like rigid um, ideas about people. Mm -hmm. And, and that comes through in this book. Um, You know, I would say, like this book is feels much more explicit about like racial politics, for example, than Fugitive Days, which of course also, you know, especially toward the end engages with the Syrian refugee crisis mm-hmm. and the ways that like borders, uh, militarized borders militate against people being able to live basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there does seem to be this like, even though the work you're doing isn't journalism, this like slide into social criticism uh that i am personally pretty stoked about like (laughs) i think your your fresh take on you know borders and racism and even like the borders imagined or otherwise between people is really interesting because your your work is so like empathetic um and i think it's interesting right now that like you know joe sacco's palestine uh palestine is being rushed by drawn and quarterly into reprinting Mm -hmm. given the ongoing genocide in Gaza, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is clearly a desire for um, a form of like visual storytelling that isn't overwhelming in the way that like the images of course that are coming out of Gaza are. Um, And I just wondered like, are you curious about doing more 
of that sort of like Sarah Glidden, Joe Sacco style uh, reporting, graphic reporting. Um, and what do you think is, what do you think, I guess, uh, could comics provide that like the current coverage of the crisis with its like, it's limited in many ways. Mm. The coverage of the crisis has been limited. Yeah. Uh, does not provide. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I, I would be interested in doing something like that. I gravitate more towards um, doing that in a way that is maybe reflecting how these uh, these greater um, events and movements uh, are, affect people's relationships with other people they care about. Um, right. And I think I would choose if if I was going to choose any uh, conflict to focus on, it would it would be the Russia Ukraine conflict. Yeah, yeah, you've been really vocal about this. Yeah, yeah, and rightfully so. I feel that there's a lot that gets lost. There's so yeah. many details that are important that are lost when we're just like looking at headlines. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, I think that people have a way of, like, they can be very zealous. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I, I understand it. But I think, and I'm not saying anybody else should be like me. <laughs> We're all going to be different and have different responses. But I think, personally, I'm... I'm more interested in, um, I'm not a zealous person. I'm, I'm much more interested in question asking mm -hmm. rather than um, providing, you know, a, basically a list of, you know, things that people should agree with me on or, or else they're going to be cut out of my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, I'm more interested in asking questions and finding connections and, also just being self-reflective because mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, double standards. There's a lot of hypocrisy. And um, I think we're all very fallible in that respect. Um, none of us are 100% morally consistent. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, you know, interrogate ourselves and understand our own um, motivations and feelings because I think people get confused between their emotions and their morals because those interesting those things don't necessarily always overlap perfectly like um oftentimes i'm finding myself confused because i'm like hmm my emotions seem to be in conflict with my morals here like why is that in whatever particular situation i'm in and i think mm. yeva is a good ex example of that because i think she's sort of like Morally speaking, she's like, okay, like, well, what happened to Langosh was wrong. So why am I mad at him for like <laughs> how he's deciding to react to it? Like, what's that about? Mm. Does he have the right to react however he wants to react? What does it have to do with me? Why is it making me upset? You know, I yeah. find myself in these situations a lot in regards to like world events. And um, I want to maybe work more with that. I love that. I mean, I think there's so much value in being able to ask 
the right question at the right time. I think it stays with people more than like being, you know, lectured at, for example. Um, You know, you can feel like you're providing all this moral clarity by lecturing people when maybe what they actually need is um, the right question at the right time. Yeah. On that point, I think, you know, one of the, um, there's a couple of things that I guess I wanted to point to, which like one is just a, importance of dialogue um, in both books, but like, especially this one, I noticed too, like stylistically, the dialogue in this book feels like it's bigger on the page. Like it's, it's like, it's taking up more space and it seems more central. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also like conversations that happen uh, that are about like timely social issues. Like you, you know, there's stuff toward the end of the book, especially where you're talking about the visible presence of encampments of people experiencing homelessness within the city. Yeah. And yeah, I just like, this is a moment where we are in Chibuktuk Mi'kma'ki where like there are people who are dying in tents yeah. trying to stay warm. Yeah. And it feels as though we're not having the conversation and we're not asking the right questions. And yeah. so were you trying to kind of like explore your own relationship to um, the root causes of this crisis of, of unhoused people, um, basically like how is hot to trot trying to think through the issue of visibility? I think in that, in, in the book, you know, it does maybe on like different levels, it touches on a lot of those questions. I think I wanted to include that in there a little bit because I think it's really unfair when people, use the visible homeless population as a way of like almost as like you're making them the champions of whatever social cause you're subscribing to. (laughs) Right. Um, And it's kind of like, well, these are individuals. These are people who have their own political social views. You know, they're not necessarily there as bastions to your cause, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Like Langos is very much, you know, he's almost kind of like, uh, almost, it's almost as if he's kind of like, well, that's the lifestyle choice, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that he, like he's kind of making. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's like, like well, what these are people, the implications of that? Right? Right? It's like these people yeah. might not be anti capitalist, you know, they're just <laughs> sure. stuck in this shitty situation because of this, uh, this situation that we're in socially and politically and everything else. Um, yeah. I think uh so I'm very very wary of um of anybody who tries to ascribe people who are suffering in that way to use them as a way of being like well this is you know clearly means that my my social cause like it is more important than yours. Mm-hmm. We need to think about how everybody is complicit in this system, least of all the people who are suffering from homelessness, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like this thing that you were talking about earlier with, you know, Yeva's sort of long-term thinking, planning, you know, anxiety about anxiety about the future, and language is more like living in the moment. What are the differences there? Which one's better than the other? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who, you know, they stake their future health and happiness on the value of their property for sure and 
they're not unreasonable to do that because that's the system that we mm-hmm. <laughs> live in. And so, sure. um, but purely by doing that, you know, you are complicit then in the fact that other people don't have that same security that you do. And so how, what does that mean? What does that say about you? And, you know, mm-hmm. so many property owners are upset about the visible homeless population, not because, you know, they're uh, sympathizing with those people, but because that's devaluing the property that they own. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. okay, we really need to take a step back here and like, look at the priorities that we have, like, Mm -hmm. like the lives of people are more important than the values of property. I think that's something that we need to be reminded of constantly. Um, And also the fact that, that's a simple thing to say. That's a, I don't think most people would argue with that, but the Mm -hmm. solutions to these things aren't so simple. It's that like basically the dismantling of our entire, uh, you know, economic setup, right? So like in many ways, yeah. (laughs) Right. So that's kind of a complex thing. That's not so simple to do. Like, Mm -hmm. and I, I think my perspective on this is largely like, being a person who's, you know, been around and lots of like radical anti-capitalist communities and everything, but then also being somebody who has Ukrainian heritage and knowing what that means when you have like, quote unquote, revolutionaries show up in your village and claim that you're an enemy of the people because you're a farmer (laughs) who owns land, who doesn't want to join the collective, you know, farming unit. And then just being killed because of that. It's like we can take these things like when we when we claim that things are so simple and so black and white, like you can cause so many more problems if you don't actually like take everybody's concerns for their safety into consideration here. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is there like we've just gotten it's such a mess post covid like we're coming we're still in this like weird zone where it's like it's hard to remember what it was like a few years ago when we couldn't even leave the house. Yeah. And now we're out and, and about and sure. we're like, "Oh crap, like there's so many systems that are failing, like our health system, our housing, um education, the environment." The environment is <laughs> like, "What? Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, like yeah, we forgot. That, is anybody working on how to make long-term living like in these like retirement centers not mm-hmm. a death trap? Is anyone thinking about that mm-hmm. anymore? Because nope. Like <laughs> you know, like I remember, yeah. like just thanking my lucky stars that my grandfather passed away before the pandemic hit because the, wow. the how horrible it would have been to try to. Mm-hmm. Um, just exist knowing that he would have been a Northwood at that time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's all this, we're getting out of it now. We're like stumbling out of this and it's like, we forgot that we need to fix these things, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, okay. Like I, I don't have the answers. I just feel that, um, getting, uh, getting confused between our emotions and our and our morals mm-hmm. and also forgetting that we need to have very diverse 
um, points of view represented. I don't think we need to make enemies out of everybody um, who isn't exactly uh, seeing things the way that we would want them to see things. We can learn from different people's perspectives is what I'm trying to say. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are a little too fast to throw out somebody's perspective if it's just coming from a different life experience than the one that they have, you know. Mm -hmm. People aren't trying to inval necessarily invalidate your life experience if they're saying that they had a different life experience that led them to have a different point of view on something. For sure. And it might take work, but that work is worthwhile. And it also takes time. And I think like that, yeah. I love that phrase, take a step back which is something that like we do far too seldom and like it takes time to take a step back. I think that's why like we just never have the time yeah. to really think through the implications of, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about like abolishing fossil fuels or changing the housing system or mm -hmm. zoning laws or. Yeah. Um, so, let's like, have more options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's absolutely <laughs> yeah. have more options. Yeah. Uh, and start listening to each other like and certainly like one of the major themes in the book is um, Langosh's specific uh, limitations when it comes to listening to women mm -hmm. um, you know like and and I know that you are in a you know like a valid card-carrying feminist radical <laughs> feminist um, you talked about this in our last interview right that you don't get asked the feminism question enough um, and maybe that's why in Hot to Trot, there is more of this kind of like, you know, triumphant almost de depiction of women as competent, as tough, as resilient. Um, you know, like there's this scene, for example, where um, Ashley and Yeva are leading Langosh on horseback. Mm -hmm. And like just this scene where you've got, you know, women who know how to ride a horse and a man who denies the fact that he doesn't really know <laughs> how to ride a horse. So like women are are strong. Um, they, you know, they they suffer and they endure. Um, you're doing all this stuff around just showing the grit and the capacity of, of women. Yeah. Did you actually like do that intentionally? Was the book... An, an attempt to kind of like not correct the narrative, but like to show women as as potentially heroic, as as resilient as and, and so on. Well, uh, there's like so many things like I don't know if I don't get asked about it enough. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. I think I would right. be annoyed if like I was constantly like being asked. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> to be like, yeah. OK, so you're a woman. Let's talk about that. But I, I think um you know, I was like really happy to have an opportunity in this book to have just a more diversity of characters in general, because in the first one, it really was kind of like Lagos traveling solo and he kind of avoids people a bit. Uh, his mm -hmm. natural inclination is like pretty um, solo. <laughs> he, he doesn't yeah. really know how to incorporate other people into his life very gracefully. And so, yeah, in this one, I was like, yeah, I can have all sorts of people in here. And, um, of course, there's going to be women in there and there's they're going to have their their own relationships to each other and, and to Langosh and everything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that was really fun. I, I think that there's another conversation in there where like Yeva sets up kind of a joke and doesn't realize it where mm -hmm. she's talking she's talking like in the beginning of the book there's sort of a conversation between her and someone who's a bit of a more of like a sort of urban 
radical anti-capitalist and you ever just doesn't understand um mm-hmm. that perspective you know because she grew up in a different way in a different place and then totally. sort of like gets just really like angry and confused and like <laughs> like pissed oh, off. oh the farming conversation yeah, the farming conversation. yeah i love and, that and then there's like it just kind of ends up being really funny and um it's sort of like, yeah, I think there was a lot there where it's like, okay, there's all of these people, all these characters in the book, all these women in the book. Um, they're very, uh, they're all very strong characters, um, all very different people. And there can be disagreements and there can be um, different perspectives. But it, at, in the end, um, there is this sort of shared um, desire to be in community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was important. And I think that's something there, like with the difference between Yevon and, uh, Langosh, where Langosh doesn't really see the benefit of community in the way mm. that Yeva does. And I think that right. is probably a, a bit of a gendered thing. Yeah. I mean, like the way that Langosh courts danger, you know, like yeah. in the, the, this, the friend that he has where they both have POS tattooed, like mm-hmm. that kind of resistant masculinity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. the, the Island subjectivity. And yeah, yeah Yeva is a, a, of a different mind entirely. Yeah. Um, because she knows that like her, her, her safety in some ways is like safeguarded by having a community, like yes. a, a, a community around her. Um, that has some degree of like trust and social cohesion, yeah. And like the there is like um, where the where the tension between that between the two characters reaches its breaking point is really around that issue of like safety, yeah. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I want to ask the question about um, the kind of transition between the titles of the two books. So you've got. The first one is Fugitive Days, and now the second one is Hot to Trot, which I love that title. I, re- I remember <laughs> seeing you on social media promoting it like early on, and it's clearly you had the title like very early. Yeah. Um, and it is a title that suggests this desire to keep moving, right? Yeah. Um, and like, you know, I, I thought the scene where, you know, the two characters are like fighting about attitudes toward the future, and then like, Langosh kind of wins Yeva over by talking about how a moving train is actually the safest place that one can be. Mm-hmm. You can't be touched, right? It's moving through space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, that's interesting to me, but just this concern with like trying to stay fugitive as, as, as a means of staying free um, seems to be a bit of a continuum between the two books. Yeah. But you know, what, what about that, uh, switch in title toward like maybe more levity with hot to trot. Was it just about kind of foregrounding the fact that this book was going to have scenes of riding horses um, <laughs> or was it, you know, do you see consistency between the two titles? I thought that uh, I'm trying to remember where I came up with the idea of fugitive days as a title. Mm-hmm. And I think it had something to do with the, it was sort of a, almost a play on words with refugee and refuge and fugitive and Mm -hmm, the connection mm -hmm. between those things. And then hot to trot. I, that came from like a few different, different um, pieces of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that 
Yeah, I knew that there was going to be horseback riding, that there was going to be a pivotal scene that had to do with this sort of like this sort of being in the West, being in the prairies and this very American landscape and this conflict that kind of would arise between Langosh and and and, uh, Ashley and Yeva. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, it's kind of like Langosh is hot to trot. Like he just is. <laughs> That's like, right. Yeah, he just is. So he wants to like, keep going. He does. He wants to keep going. He's he's like literally uncomfortable when he's not on the move, and so that seemed like mm-hmm. a good title. And I try. I really do try to bring humor into this as much as possible because. And it can make it a little difficult to talk about the themes of my book because when I try to talk about it, I'm like, police brutality, <laughs> all the stuff. Right. I'm like, but it's funny. I, <laughs> I try totally. to make it funny. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, Hot to Trot just hit the right note for me. Yeah, I think it really works. And like the names that you choose to uh, have this kind of significance for me, like Langosh, I, I realize at a certain point sounds a little bit like languish and he does like <laughs> to be lazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Claire has this connection to clarity and she is like the voice of reason a lot in the book. Mm. But it's interesting too, because like when you think about languish and he, again, he likes he likes his, his rest. He likes to yeah. kind of langu- languish a little. He also is uncomfortable staying still. So it's like this interesting tension in that character. But well, yeah, I think there's a whole thing there with the movement, too, where it's like movement, uh, being safe in movement um, Mm -hmm. as a as a fugitive. You know, there's that. And then there's being safe in movement in terms maybe for for Yeva a little bit more and just being flexible with your um, thoughts on things like being you know not being stuck in one place mentally mm-hmm. um is also a way of being safe is of staying safe um and i think uh yeah there's probably a lot of other things we can get into with that whole question when it comes to the movement and the safety part but then also mm-hmm. when you're when you stand in one place this is a struggle for langosh when you stand in one place all of a sudden, there are going to be people who have expectations of you. Yeah. And that can be really scary, you know? Like, am I going to live up to these expectations? What if I don't want to do the expectations? What if I have to set a boundary around these expectations? Like, what do I want? Did he just get totally overwhelmed by that? And he's just like, you know what? I'd rather have no one have any expectations of me at all, and I'll just, like, keep moving. Mm-hmm. There is comfort in that, right? Like yeah. that, I get that. Yes. Um, you know, you can reach a point emotionally. You know, you've talked a lot about this kind of confusion of emotion and morals or values. You know, as you get more intimate with a, a friend or a comrade, like it is the case that you're going to feel more like burdened in some ways by it. Like more because responsibility can feel like a burden, right? But yeah. that's kind of the only way we can guarantee one another's safety and thriving and flourishing in the world is to have that degree of mutual responsibility well yeah and i think about that a lot with people generally and you know people taking a look at these uh, worldwide just like horrific conflicts that are happening right and being like well the solution is simple and Mm. it's like just be kind to each other you know and it's like yeah how kind are you to the people in your life that Mm -hmm. you actually care about and understand and know like it's actually quite 
a challenging thing. So it's not so... It's, it's, it's doing a disservice, first of all, to people who work in regions that have experienced a lot of conflict, who are working towards peace. It's a disservice to them to say that it, the solution is so simple. Because if it was, you know, like, what, what are they doing all this work for? Right. And it's also um, just a yeah. disservice in general to people in their day-to-day -day lives who are, like, struggling to resolve conflicts with the people that they love. And that's what this book is about. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It is it is more fun than maybe we um, represented it as like it is just a, <laughs> a, an adventure story. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think like the, the thing that is really terrific about it is that it also is like subtly philosophical in all of these different ways. Like it's it's good stuff. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for talking to me about it. Yeah, well, thank you for asking all those questions, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed the book. <laughs>